Amen. As um, we prepare to turn to our study of God's Word, before we do that, I want to take a moment to um, wish all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. Um, this is a, a special day where we celebrate our mothers, our grandmothers, even our great-grandmothers. We, we celebrate all that they are and all that they do in our lives. They clean, they care for, they protect, they teach, they bandage wounds, they feed, they discipline, and they do so much more. Scripture is clear that we are to give honor to those to whom honor is due. And that's why we, as a, as a church, want to take a moment to, to talk about this, because we want to give honor to those to whom honor is due. We want to recognize the, the women of Grace Covenant for their dedication and their service to their homes and their families and to those children that have been entrusted to their care by the Lord. Um, as John just read for us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, there have been mothers and grandmothers specifically called out in Scripture even who played a, a great and honorable and undeniable role in shaping some of the church's greatest servants. And, and women who do that are, are worthy of recognition. And we have such women here, women who have genuine faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, women who pass that faith on, both in word and in deed, to the children that the Lord has entrusted to their care. Yesterday afternoon, I had a chance to listen to John MacArthur's sermon from last Sunday, and he is on a series on the family, and he talked about in his introduction the fact that culture, our culture today is is waging an undeclared war on our children. It, it wages a war on, on morality, on biblical Christianity in general, but it also is waging a war against our children. Wicked people are promoting and propagating evil at the expense of our next and youngest generation. And as a church... One of our front lines of defense against such evil is the home. The home is the place, is, is one place where these dear mothers and grandmothers and even great-grandmothers, I don't think we have any great-great-grandmothers among our number, so our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers play such a pivotal role in our homes. They are, in, in many ways, the first line of defense against the evil of the world. And so, ladies, I want to give you a, a quick charge before we turn to God's Word, to Galatians. And, and I say that, I um, just want to say that your dedication, your work, your teaching, and your discipline in your home will, by God's grace, be formative and will shape this next and youngest generation. So please, dear, dear ladies, dear friends, for God's sake and for God's glory, keep striving to be faithful. That's all that, that we can ask. That's all that the Lord asks is that you continue to be faithful. Teach the word. Speak about the word. 
and live the word in front of these dear children. And all that you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, for the Lord's glory, because there are little eyes watching you, and there are little ears listening to everything you say. So you have a, a very sobering work before you because your life is on display 24 hours a day in front of these little ones. And I commend you because I look around this room and see a, a room full of ladies who exemplify what it means to serve their home and striving to raise their children up in the fear and the admonition and the word of the Lord. So truly, thank you for all that you do in your homes. I, I truly, truly do praise God for the godly ladies of Grace Covenant. Clark echoes that sentiment 100%. The work that you do and that you will accomplish for the kingdom of God through your home, through your dedication to your children, is truly incalculable. So please, strive, continue, labor, and toil for God's glory and the salvation of the souls of these precious little ones are at stake. So I commend you and I encourage and exhort you to continue to press on and to be faithful. Now with that, let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to bite off a larger chunk this morning, verses 13 through 24. And we're going to look at these verses under the title of God's Authority Alone. Um, in a way, this is almost a part two from what we looked at last week in verses 10 through 12. Um, Paul has spent the beginning portion of this letter setting up and giving a defense of his ministry. We saw last week that he said that he seeks not the praise and the honor and the approval of men, but rather he seeks to please and honor and be found faithful by God. Paul has labored to make the point that he and his ministry are under the authority of God alone. His earthly ministry was not against the other disciples. It was not in favor of the other disciples, but rather his earthly ministry, especially in the earliest days of it, were learned of Christ directly from Christ. Paul was commissioned directly by Christ, and that is what we've seen in these first 12 verses of Galatians 1, is that Paul was sent directly by Christ, and now he stands up to this church that was planted, or these churches that were planted and formed under his ministry, under his preaching of the gospel, and he stands up to them to proclaim to them, you are going off track. You need to take care that you don't go out and believe and proclaim another gospel. But looking back up to verses 6 and 7, he says, this is not really another gospel. There are only some who want to disturb you and distort the gospel. And so Paul has a grave concern for these dear saints, and he is bold and he is clear in his coming to them to right the wrongs that are creeping into the Galatian churches. So let's read our passage, Galatians 1, verses 13 through 24, and we want to look at the transformation of Paul as a former persecutor of the church, and then the God-glorifying ministry that the Lord had entrusted to Paul. So let's read Galatians 1, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, 
For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. That I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, and they were glorifying God because of me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now, and as we seek to study and to learn from and to apply your word in our lives, Lord, we understand that that the communication of the truths of Scripture is a spiritual work. It is a miraculous work. Yes, you do use the words of men to do that. But the journey that we will embark on in this time is not a work between human and human. It is a spiritual work where your spirit must communicate these truths to our hearts. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in this time. Help us to focus. Help the words that are spoken to be clear and edifying and glorifying to you. Lord, may we have humble hearts that are ready to receive your word, that are eager to apply the truth. Lord, would you search us, for you know us. You know the deepest parts of our hearts and lives. I pray that you would reveal to us, if there be any grievous or sinful way in us, that you would reveal that to us and lead us in the everlasting way. Lord, that is the way of repentance. God, if your spirit does not move in us today, if your spirit does not work in us, then we have gathered in vain. So please help us in this time. Lord, please be glorified in all that is said and the responses in in the days and weeks and months going forward to your true and holy and pure revelation. Lord, be glorified I pray that Christ would be formed in us so that we would live lives pleasing, honoring, glorifying to you. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So very clearly defined, this text teaches us that faithful and fruitful God-glorifying ministry comes only to those who proclaim the undisputed, undiluted, 
and unpolluted direct revelation of God. That is his holy word, the Bible. This text teaches us that we must teach this free from the concerns of the opinions and the approval of men. Paul said that in a nutshell last week in three verses, and now he comes back and essentially illustrates it for us as he gives his personal testimony, the testimony of his conversion to Christ and the testimony of his early days ministering and learning, ministering for Christ and learning of Christ. And this is what Paul has labored to make clear for us thus far, that he seeks not the favor of men, but he is rather a slave of Christ. We must be slaves of Christ if we're going to preach and proclaim the undiluted word of God. Paul's not under the authority of men. He did not learn Christ from men. His, his learning of Christ came directly from God himself. And that is the means by which he preaches an unpolluted gospel because it is free from what men might bring into it. It was the direct revelation of Jesus Christ of the work that Christ did directly to Paul. And friends, this is what is required of us, both as individuals and as a corporate church body if we are going to have a God-honoring ministry. We must concern ourselves with only the authority and the instruction of the Lord God himself. We must be concerned with only the authority and the instruction that is revealed in holy scripture. So let's look at these verses, Paul's testimony in his own words. Let's consider how we might submit ourselves to God's word and to the authority structure that he presents to us through the whole of scripture so that we might minister in such a way that we can say with Paul in verse 24 that they were glorifying God because of me. Now you hear that, and we'll get to that later on, but you hear that and you think that's almost a contradiction of terms, a contradictory phrase. They were glorifying God because of me. What Paul's saying is they glorified God because I faithfully, in the power and the grace of God, ministered Christ in the way that I should. So Paul labored. It was Paul that was striving, but it was the grace of God in Paul, laboring and striving and making the gospel clear. And when the Jerusalem church heard of that ministry, they glorified God. Do your good works in such a way that others see those good works and glorify God because of you. So we'll look at this text in um, two points, um, really two kind of headings, you know, two, two ideas to hang our, our thoughts on as we work through. This is two paragraphs, and so we'll just kind of split them up one at a time. Verses 13 through 17, we'll look at under the heading of the persecutor transformed. The persecutor transformed. And Paul makes a very interesting argument here, I think, as we think about this in context when, when he wants to make it clear to the Galatians that his ministry was not seeking the approval of men, Paul goes back to what his life was before Christ. In these verses 13 through 17, he outlines how his life before Christ was specifically geared toward the approval of men. That was Paul's great desire. Paul's great goal before the Lord saved him was he wanted to advance among men. He wanted the approval 
of men. That's what the Jewish religious system ultimately resulted in, the approval of men, because they were carrying out men's laws according to what men had written and men desired, and men would then approve of one another. Paul's explanation begins to show how, how this desire for the praise of men in his former life and now what he has left behind and went towards, it shows how he so clearly did not labor for the sake of the praise of men. Paul begins by telling how he used to persecute the church. He said, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism and how I used to persecute the church of God beyond, beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. Paul's goal in life, his greatest desire in life before being miraculously saved on that road to Damascus was to tear down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He described himself as a Hebrew among Hebrews. Most of the Jews of that day saw Jesus, they heard of the ministry, and despite all the enormous amounts of evidence that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, they rejected Jesus. They said that he was a blasphemer. Paul was right there with them. He had a singular devotion. He had a singular focus. He was intent on only one thing, and that one thing was to inflict enough suffering on those who followed Christ that they would stop following Christ. He wanted to inflict so much harm that the church of Christ ceased to exist. Paul was zealous for the law. As I said, he was counted among the Pharisees. And so as he points these things out, just think through the, the miraculous nature of his conversion, the miraculous nature of this transformation. He was saved out of works-based religion to a, to a salvific message that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Originally, before being saved, he found the hope of salvation in what he did. The greatest thing that Paul thought he could accomplish was to stamp out this church of Jesus. That was his great desire. Paul then says that he was advancing in Judaism. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Surely you hear from that his great concern for, for the praise of men. You hear how he had measured himself by the standard of other men. He doesn't say that I was advancing in Judaism greatly according to the written, revealed law and word of God. He says, I was advancing in Judaism far beyond even my countrymen. Uh, you, you look at this picture of people here, I was way past them. They were my standard of measure because all we're talking about is legalistic law-keeping, and I advanced far beyond them. Paul measured his great zeal for the law against the zeal of the law of the other Pharisees, the other Jews. He had to outdo others to gain the approval of both God and men. The term advancing here, he says that I was advancing in Judaism. That Greek word speaks to, um, it speaks to, to lengthening something by hammering it. Think about a blacksmith forging some type of metal. And while that metal's hot, they're beating it with a hammer to, to beat it into the shape or the form. They're stretching out that metal as they beat it 
to, to take the form that they want. Paul says that that's what he was doing as he was growing and advancing in Judaism. And like how MacArthur defined this, he picked up on that word, and he said it's as though Paul was blazing a trail through a forest. He kept blazing his trail in Judaism, which meant cutting down anything in his path, such as Jewish Christians. Paul was a trailblazer. Paul was out to cut a path, to cut a trail, to get to his end goal. His end goal was to advance in Judaism beyond and farther than anyone else that he knew or, or could, could be compared to. He was a trailblazer in every area of life. You know, that's one thing that's so interesting about the life of Paul is he goes from being a trailblazer in Judaism, one who was disciplined, who was advancing beyond everyone, to the greatest preacher and minister of the gospel the history of the world has ever known. Paul was put on this earth for a purpose, and you see that purpose in his life even before he was converted. The Lord formed in him this great discipline, this great focus, this great ability to pour all of his life and all of his energy into but one thing. Before salvation, it was to advance in the law. After salvation, it was to advance the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice then the object of this great zeal. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen. I was advancing beyond these other Jews. He said, I was being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. More extremely zealous. Paul was full of it. He was full of himself. He said, look how zealous I was being for Judaism. I was being so zealous for, he said, my ancestral traditions. This is termed the Legacy Standard Bible, the new Bible being being formed by the Master's Seminary, translate this phrase literally to say the traditions of my fathers. That's what Paul was following, the traditions of his fathers. Paul makes it so clear that the Jewish faith had left the authority of the, of the written and revealed word of God. There was written and revealed word of God from the Old Testament. They had left that authority and lived according to their own traditions. That is what Paul was striving after. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were strict observers of the, the current modern-day Jewish law. However, these were the traditions of men. They were passed down through the generations, and, and they had left the authority of God's Word. And Jesus picked up on that. You remember in um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus thoroughly addressed throughout his earthly ministry, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount, this idea of the Jews shifting away from what the original intent of the law was just to make it a set of rules that they could follow, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, how heavy of an item you could carry on the Sabbath. You can divorce your wife for reason X, Y, or Z, but not for reason A, B, or C. They came up with a set of rules to allow them to basically do whatever they wanted and still say, oh, yes, we kept the written law of God, which was really the written law of man. If you were to turn, we won't for the sake of time, to Matthew chapter 5, you could look at verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, and verse 38, and see these instances where Jesus starts his sentence saying, you have heard it said this, 
drawing from the Old Testament law, but I say to you, this was the Old Testament law. This is the true and right application of the Old Testament law. The Jews had taken God's law. They had twisted it and perverted to it and added to it and made even entirely different sets of laws that were focused, as I said, only on external behaviors. The Jews disregarded the transformation of the heart that has to take place in salvation. Paul confesses that he was formally committed to such laws, to such law-keeping, for that was how he advanced in the approval and the praise and the honor of men. Paul was seeking to be preeminent among his fellow Jews because of his zeal for keeping the law. Now I want to pause here because I don't want to miss an opportunity to share with you what Scripture says about zeal for obedience. We hear how Paul completely missed the mark in his zeal for obedience, but, but there is biblical mandate, biblical command that we be zealous for good deeds. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, and then Titus 3, verse 8. Paul says that believers should be zealous for good deeds. In chapter 3, he goes on to say that those who have believed God should be careful to engage in good deeds. This is Paul writing, the one who just formerly came out of all this Jewish law. And he says, yet you, Christian, you follower of Christ, do just as Jesus said. If you love him, you will keep his commands. You will obey his word. Many of you are familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Beautiful, glorious set of verses. But don't miss verse 10. The, the end and the conclusion of that paragraph in Paul's writing, he says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those good works God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Zeal for good works is not a bad thing. Zeal for good works is commanded in Scripture. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he said, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Be zealous for what is good. And essentially, Peter says, the Lord will be with you because you will be harmed. You will suffer. There will be evil that rises up against you. But nobody can touch you when you prove zealous for what is good because your God, the God of all creation, will be with you. Paul had to renounce his zeal for the law because the motive, the object of his law keeping, the object of his devotion was misplaced. It was not his zeal that was wrong, it was the motive of that zeal. It was because he was zealous to keep the law because he wanted to advance beyond other people, other men. And the law that he was even keeping was really out of step with the truth of Scripture. But on the authority of Scripture, friends, we can say that zeal for good works honors and glorifies God. It is, yes, even commanded. By God. So don't hear this from Paul as we will go through Galatians and see time and time again that salvation is by faith alone. It is apart from works of the law. 
don't hear that to say that anybody who says, I'm zealous to keep God's word, I'm zealous to obey God, don't hear what Paul is saying and, and hear him to say, no, you shouldn't be those things. Scripture is clear. We are called to obey. We are called, as Peter would write, to be holy, just as he who called us is holy. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. We must seek to be made like Christ. Now, moving to verses 15 through 17, we see that the, Paul shares the great transformation that took place in his heart. The great transformation that, that led to this proper zeal. And that is rooted, as he says in verse 15, when God was pleased to reveal the Son to Paul. There's so much that can be uncovered and said about verses 15 through 17. And we just kind of want to look at them from, from a high level to, to keep our context in mind. And so to do that, I want to, want to read a rendering kind of, of verses 15 through 17 that really zones in on Paul's singular focus. We're going to kind of leave out what Paul says about how God saved him. And I want you to listen to what was Paul's response to being saved. So, so think about verses 15 through 17 as say this, But when God called me through his grace, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and then returned once more to Damascus. Friends, that highlights the primary point that Paul is making in this. It's to describe the great shift in his thinking and the goals of his heart. As a Jew, he sought to advance amongst his peers, amongst his fellow Jews. But as one who was in Christ, as a follower of Christ, he sought not the approval of men nor the input of men, but he sought to be faithful to that which was revealed to him by Christ. I love Calvin's commentary on this. Calvin said, relying on the authority of God alone and asking for nothing more, Paul proceeded to discharge the duty of preaching the gospel. Paul, in one way, was so simple-minded. Christ had come and revealed himself, and Paul said, you know what? That's enough. I'm going away. I know that Christ is with me. I know that Christ is going to be my teacher, so I'm not going to consult with flesh and blood. I'm not going to consult with these other apostles who have directly learned from Christ. I'm going away, and I'm going to discharge the duty of my charge and proclaim the gospel of Christ. I will go away, and Christ will be my teacher. Now, we would have to ignore a lot of other scriptures to hear what Paul is saying here to condone an individualistic Christianity. We understand from scripture that we are called to local bodies. We are called to, to join our lives together. We're called to be part of a local family of God. But we also see from Paul that there's a great importance in being willing and able to stand on the authority of God alone. Friends, if you need one of these brothers or sisters who's around you in this room to proclaim Christ, what are you going to do in the workplace when you're surrounded by only heathens? You must internalize and, and take into and onto yourself the, the work and the word of Christ. That's the takeaway from what Paul was able to do here. Not to say that 
you move off to another town and you don't need a church because you can watch online church or you can do this, that, or the other. It's say, when I'm out on my own, I need to willingly and ably be able to stand on the authority of Scripture alone on my own from what I know. I don't need a brother or a sister to give me the courage and the knowledge to proclaim Christ. Our walks with Christ is an individual walk from that standpoint that we must learn of Christ. We must grow in Christ. We must know more of Christ. Paul did not need the help or the instruction of men, not because he knew everything, but because he preached the truth that was directly revealed by God. He was able to go away because he had an authoritative message. It was the message of the truth of the gospel of Christ revealed to him by Christ. The ministerial authority to which Paul submitted was not a church. At this point, it was not a board of elders or a seminary or a church planning network or anything like that. Paul's authority was Christ and Christ alone. Paul's authority and his message was the direct revelation that he received about Christ from Christ. Now, we must be like Paul today. Scripture is clear. The New Testament clearly shows us the the structures of the church that the Lord has ordained and, and has taught about. But we must have this spirit of Paul to go out and do and accomplish and proclaim. We must be joined and submitted to a local church. We must be joined to a local church for regular assembly. We must be joined to a church for submission to local elders. We must join together for worship, for service, for evangelism, for accountability, and for so many other things that are clearly commanded in Scripture. But those things must be carried out under the authority of Scripture, and they must be carried out in such a way that we can go out into the world and rightly and truly and boldly proclaim Christ. We do indeed have a corporate identity. We do indeed have a corporate accountability. But friends, don't let those things cause you to miss your individual responsibility. You cannot be saved. You cannot live a God-honoring life just because this church teaches and preaches the Bible. You must take hold of these things. They must take root in your heart by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you must take them and go out and live them day in and day out, week in and week out. Paul was charged... You think about this again. Paul was charged by these Judaizers as being one who was softening the gospel. He was charged as being one who was a man-pleaser. And he just clearly and firmly debunks this, saying, Look, I didn't even go hear from other people. I didn't go ask the apostles, Hey, what, what are you doing to soften this message so I can go do that? I learned of Christ from Christ, and I went out and preached that gospel. He didn't do it for the, for the praise of men. As, as we said last week, preaching the gospel will not earn you the favor of men. The gospel is folly and foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and the grace and the goodness of God. We must have the, the same boldness and the same humble submission to the Lord that Paul has displayed, that we go out and we believe the word, we live the word, and we proclaim the word. Now, just quickly, I want to look at Paul's description of his salvation. You know, we could, we could spend a whole week looking at what 
Paul says about how he was saved. But I want to move through verses 15 and 16 fairly quickly to, to just see kind of in context what Paul talks about with his transformation. He says that God had set me apart even from my mother's womb. Paul was called by the grace of God. It was a sovereign work of God to call Paul unto salvation. When, when the Lord had, had revealed himself to Paul in Damascus, Paul went on into the city and he was waiting and the Lord sent a man named Ananias to go minister to Paul. And what did, what did the Lord tell Ananias in Acts 9 verse 15? He said, go because Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. He is a choice instrument. He is my chosen one to go declare the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul knew this. He knew that it was God's unmerited love and favor and kindness and goodness poured out upon his life that he might proclaim the glories and the excellencies of Christ. Paul saw the mercy that the ministry that was entrusted to him as a mercy, as a gift from the Lord. He goes on to say that the Lord called him through his grace in verse 16, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that, the Greek word hina, the Greek word that shows a singular and express purpose. Paul says, I was saved, I received God's grace for the direct singular purpose that I go out and preach Christ to the Gentiles. And preach Christ, Paul did. He was saved for that purpose to go preach Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24, he says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But again, to those who are being saved, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Paul was saved to preach Christ and preach Christ. He did. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, Paul says, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul was saved for this express and exact purpose. Paul knew his salvation was by the grace of God and that that grace was given to him that he might glorify God by proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And dear friends, the same is true of us, the same is true of you and me, that we are saved by God so that we might glorify him in this life, on this world, by living out the truth of his word and proclaiming the gospel to souls who are lost and perishing and going to hell. We are saved, as we saw earlier, to be zealous for good works so that we might glorify God in the way that we live. So that's the great transformation of Paul, the, the persecutor transformed. Now, moving forward to verses 18 through 24, we see the preacher revealed, the preacher revealed. Verse 18, then Paul says, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. 
and they were glorifying God because of me. So Paul was saved. He was set apart. He was entrusted with the gospel. And he spent some three years in Arabia and then back in Damascus, the town where he was when he was saved. And after this period of three years, he went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter, to, to know Peter, to, to talk to Peter. Once he was prepared and launched into ministry directly by Christ, directly by God, Paul then ventured to Jerusalem to visit Peter. That's that period of three years the Lord was ministering through Paul, but he was also ministering to Paul, preparing Paul for what Paul would do and accomplish for the sake of the kingdom. Now, we remember um, Peter, he was among Jesus' closest companions. He was among the inner circle. He, he was there with James and John, who were the closest to Jesus. James and John, the, the, a different James, James, Jesus' half-brother, along with John and Peter, were then called the pillars of the Jerusalem church. Paul refers to them as that in Galatians chapter 2. And so, surely Peter had great influence. He was well-known, and, and Paul ventures there to see him. Paul had been out and been prepared for ministry. Now, just one note, don't take this of Paul going out for three years to be prescriptive about the call to ministry. That section of what Paul did there is absolutely narrative. The Lord prepares and raises up pastors and ministers and elders and deacons and missionaries and all the like through the local church. Remember, the local church was being formed at this time. And so the Lord did a special work in Paul, a special work that we cannot claim that he does. If, if you claim a call to gospel ministry, you need to be rooted and grounded and firmly planted in a local church, in a healthy local church, to, to, be, to be set apart by that church, to be sent out, whether to that church or to another church, to be a minister of the gospel. So what was Paul's purpose in Jerusalem? He doesn't really tell us a whole lot. He just says, I went to be acquainted with Peter. I went to meet with Peter and to talk with Peter. He says, I didn't see any of the other disciples except for James, the, the half-brother of Jesus who was saved after Jesus' resurrection. He says, so I went and, and I spent time with Peter. And he very strongly states, I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Paul's making it clear that there was no great influence on his ministry, even after those three years. Even after he was grounded in Christ, he says, I went and it was only Peter. You know, obviously we, he saw some people. He didn't just go and stay in a building for 15 days. But he went and he spent time with Peter. He's saying, there was no great influence on my ministry. I wasn't grounded in Christ and then came to Jerusalem and was taught how to now suddenly water down the gospel as Peter and John and James were charged with doing by the Judaizers. Paul goes as far as to say that, that he went on and spent 14 years away in Syria and Cilicia, Galatians 2 verse 1 says that there was an interval of 14 years from that trip to Jerusalem until he came back to Jerusalem again. And in that whole period, he says, I was still, verse 22, Galatians 1 verse 22, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. 
he went. He did not make a parade of himself. He did not go and, and, and make the message and the office that he was serving in a political message and office. He went, he became acquainted with Peter, and then he left. And it was 14 years before he ever came back again. What did he do in those 14 years? He went out and planted churches and preached the gospel of Christ. That's probably when the, the, the Galatian churches were formed. And so he says in verse 23, Still unknown by sight, those people in Judea only kept hearing that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he tried to destroy. Now, do you hear that statement and, and respond in any other way than to praise the Lord and to marvel at his glorious work in the life of the Apostle Paul, the one who once persecuted and sought to destroy the church is now the church's greatest ally. He is now the church's greatest minister. Acts 9.23 says that, that the Jews there in Damascus plotted together to do away with Paul. They plotted together to kill Paul. They wanted to get rid of him. The persecutor, persecutor had become the persecuted. The hunter had become the hunted. The one who sought to stamp out the church was now the church's greatest minister, the greatest preacher and proclaimer of Christ. Now imagine these Jewish Christians. You know, Paul was well known for the broad suffering that he inflicted upon Christians in, in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea. These people had likely suffered already at the hands of Paul. Now, they're likely some of those who had, been, who had been kicked out of families or homes or beaten or stoned or, or had their lives ruined by Paul's hatred of the church. And now they hear that Paul is suffering for preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. Dear ones, this is the power and this is the mark of the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. The one who once persecuted the church is now preaching in favor of the church while suffering greatly for doing it. That is the transforming mark of the power of the gospel. Those who preach or those who believe in a less effective, a less powerful, and a less transformative gospel are believing in and preaching and holding to an incomplete gospel. If you preach a gospel that does not lead to transformation of life and heart and will and desire, you are preaching an incomplete gospel. The good news of Christ is what the good news is, but then to receive Christ, to have Christ be applied to us, we are baptized into Christ, as Paul talks about in Galatians 3. We are clothed with Christ, as he talks about. We have the Spirit come in and fill us. We display the fruit of the Spirit. So to go out and proclaim that you can be saved while still living a life of debauchery is to preach an incomplete gospel. The, the incomplete outworkings, practical outworkings of the gospel. So then what was the response? What was the response to Paul's preaching? The people heard that he who persecuted the church was now preaching the faith that he tried to destroy. Verse 24, it says, They were glorifying God because of me. They were glorifying God because of the fruit of Paul's ministry 
and, and the glorious transformation that was seen in his life when he went from a hater of Christ to a slave of Christ. And there's so much that could be said here, but our time is running short. And let's just consider for a moment, the, what is, this is the fruit of the pure-hearted gospel minister. What is the fruit of a pure-hearted gospel minister? The fruit that is clearly seen is that his fellow saints glorify God because of his ministry. That is the fruit of true gospel ministry, that your fellow saints hear of your work for Christ. They don't puff you up, but they glorify God because of the work that you are accomplishing. The pure-hearted gospel minister does not grow in the approval of men. God's glory grows in the heart of men. We are not the great end of our ministries. Each one of us has a ministry entrusted to us by the Lord. And friend, you are not the end of your ministry. The glory of God in Christ is the end of your ministry. What should be our response then when we see the Lord blessing the faithful gospel ministry of another brother or sister? How should you respond? Respond like these Jewish Christians did. Glorify God because of his work being accomplished through those others. Don't be bitter. Don't be resentful. Don't wonder why is God using him or her or that family or that church or that ministry. Glorify God that Christ is being proclaimed and hearts are being, dead hearts are being brought to life and lives are being transformed. What should we do when we see a formerly great and egregious sinner transformed by Christ? How should we respond to that? Dear friend, again, you should fall on your knees glorifying God. When you see one who was once a hater of God, a hater of Christ, living a immoral, debauched, sinful, evil, wicked life, when that one is transformed, you don't look to that and say, well, why did God put his blessing and favor on that person? You look and you say, glory to God, glory to God alone that this person has been transformed, that they now avoid eternal hell, will be in eternity with Christ, and now their life can bring honor and glory to the Lord. So now just a brief summary, and we'll close here. Paul had been greatly advancing in the eyes of men, according to the rules and the laws of men. He'd been greatly advancing by men's standards. But once in Christ, once he was in Christ, he rejected the approval of men. And then and only then did others glorify God because of his life. He rejected the approval of men, and then others glorified God because of him. Friends, if we desire our own names to be praised, we will seek the approval of men. This is where we must examine our hearts. If you want the praise of men, you will seek to proclaim a message that they approve of. You will not preach Christ if you want to be liked. Because the true message of the gospel is not liked by those who are on the path to hell. But if we desire for God to be glorified, we will forsake the praise of men. We will seek only to honor and glorify and, and be faithful to Christ. And if that is what you seek, you, you will receive the approval 
of the Lord, you will be found faithful, and you will glorify God. Do you hear verse 24 and, and say, yes, Lord, that is my heart. I want others to glorify God because of my faithfulness to you. Or do you hear verse 24 and, and say, well, I do want people to glorify God, but I would also kind of like to be put on a little bit of a pedestal. I would kind of like them to think well of me, too. I'd like for God to receive most of the glory. But yeah, some of the praise of men would, would feel pretty good, too. It would encourage me. It pressed me on. It would spur me on. You know, just if, if those people would come and, and, and give me a pat on the back on the occasion, then, then I will keep being faithful. Dear friend, if that's your heart, you will fail and you will fall flat on your face, but for the grace of God. Faithfulness to the only true gospel will result in our being approved by the only one whose approval is worth anything. In faithfulness to the only true gospel, faithfulness to the whole revelation of God's word is what will result in you receiving approval from the only one whose approval matters. That's the Lord God Almighty himself. So friends, as we close, may we be faithful to God. May we be faithful to his word. May we seek to honor him so that he might bring great fruit to our efforts to honor and obey him not to the end that Jared Nelson receives honor and glory, not to the end that Grace Covenant Baptist Church is thought well of in our community, but may we be faithful to God and to his word to the end that his name is glorified both here among us, here in our town, in our state, in our country, and to the ends of the world. For that is our mission, to preach Christ, to disciple those who come to Christ, and to make sure, to strive and to labor, to, to see to it that God's name is glorified by everything that we say and everything that we do. And this is only possible in God's power. This is only possible by his grace and through his spirit. So we must seek to do all of this through him and him alone. So with that, I know our service has went a little long today. Um, I ask you to stand with us. We will forego our closing song, we'll close with a word of prayer, and then I'll just give you a couple of announcements, and we will dismiss. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.